Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. I'm delighted to share the rest of the second series is once again in partnership with Heck. Being an independent and family-owned business, they pull out all the stops to bring that farmer's market quality to the supermarket shelf. In addition to their delicious original range, they offer veggie options too, catering for absolutely everyone, all of which can be found online at heckfood.co.uk and in the major supermarkets too. Hello and thank you so much for tuning in to Food for Thought, a podcast on a mission to equip you with all the evidence-based advice you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, a registered nutritionist, master practitioner, best-selling author of Renourish, A Simple Way to Eat Well and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. In each episode of this second series, I'll be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authorities in the world of well-being, so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. Although we can't always see it, it seems we can't avoid it. Pollution is increasingly cited as one of the world's biggest threats to health. It's there when we step outside for some supposed fresh air. It's present throughout our commute to work. It can even be found in our very own homes. So, should we fear pollution? And is there really anything we can do to avoid it? Joining me today to understand more about the real impact of pollution is Dr. Matthew Loxham, a fellow in respiratory biology and air pollution toxicology at the University of Southampton. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, there's a lot to discuss with pollution, and I hope we can get through it all. Fingers crossed. See how we go. <laughs> I mean, with the World Health Organization suggesting that pollution is a major cause of death and disease globally, is it really as bad as it sounds? I think there's there's two factors here. I think the main factor is that we're, we're learning more and more about how air pollution is affecting us. So mm. so the estimates are going up. You know, in the 2000s, we were thinking maybe one or two million people were, were having deaths that were, were brought earlier by air pollution. Now the figure's gone up to eight, maybe nine million. <gasps> That's not because more people are being affected by it, but because mm. we're understanding so much more. But also we're still understanding more. So I suspect those figures are going to carry on increasing, even though actually globally pollution's going down slightly. Well, it's interesting you say globally because obviously we'd associate it maybe here with faraway cities like Beijing and China and 
But it, it definitely does affect towns and villages, of course, too, surely. Of course. It, it depends where you are. And we, we do associate it with, with these faraway cities where there's a lot of industrialisation. And in a way, it's a bit like in this country in the in the late 19th and early 20th century when we had factories everywhere yes. burning coal and we had smog. The Industrial Revolution. Exactly, yep. exactly. And London in the early 50s, the London smog. And, and mm. you know, that stands in history as kind of the first major air pollution event that was really studied. Um, but but actually in this country we're still exposed to pollution it's from different sources okay. so instead of being big factories and big coal burning power stations now we have wood burning stoves we have mm. diesel cars mm. um, so, so it's, it's, it's changed and of course what we're exposed to here is less than what people might be exposed to in Shanghai for example mm. but that doesn't mean there's no effect at all well, no, because I, I was looking at doing some research and an environmental charity um, called Friends of the Earth, they reported that air pollution now exceeds safety limits in almost 2,000 locations across the UK. So I really <laughs> hate these safety limits. Here we um, go. <laughs> so th there's, there's two limits. So there's the European Union, okay. at, at least for the next couple of weeks. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I don't have, know when this um, podcast is no. out, but who knows what will be. We won't bring up the B word. We'll see what happens. Um, but the European Union has legal limits on on various pollutants, both for an annual average and a, and a shorter term exposure. Mm. And then the World Health Organization has a, a guideline level, which isn't legally enforced. But it's notable that in a lot of cases, the World Health Organization recommendations are much lower than the EU. And right. actually, the EU levels are much lower than other organizations elsewhere ah, in the world. Okay. So these limits, they don't represent safe levels we no. know in fact that there are health effects below eu limits so yeah. even if you're breathing what is classed as safe air it's not mm. um, but they're set kind of pragmatically based on what's doable what's okay. feasible without damaging the economy and making everyone who works in industry homeless for no example. yeah so of course. it's difficult balancing act no i'm really pleased you've shared that because that we can obviously when we're not educated in this area it's very easy to be scared with these statistics and, and when it comes to being scared I mean I know we're only just at the beginning of discovering the true extent of pollution but I did read something last week um here we go again <laughs> I read it in the European Heart Journal and it suggested that the number of early deaths caused worldwide by pollution is 8.8 .8 million a year and that's after a few comparisons so they found that toxic air is killing more people than tobacco smoking I mean is, is that true okay so <laughs> The first thing is the use of the word caused. Yes. So it's more of an association, and mm -hmm. we would say associated. Basically, statistically, if those 8.8 .8 million people had not been exposed to air pollution, statistically, they would probably have died less early than they did. Uh -huh. They may well have died anyway. Okay. So it's, yeah. it's not people who have gone outside, taken a breath, and died. Mm. Um and also, we can't be sure that it's causative. So no, we can't be sure that the pollution's causing that. Although mm. the amount of evidence that's out there suggests that it, it probably is in a large part causing it. Okay. Um, but certainly, yeah, it, it, it's affecting particularly people with, with pre-existing disease. Of so course. these aren't people who, who have been perfectly healthy, gone outside and had a heart attack. No. They're people mainly with underlying disease who are affected yeah. by air pollution. Yeah. But it does certainly affect a very large number of people, um, both... Um, in a way that they can't tell, perhaps mm. ways that we can measure scientifically but that mm. they, they don't understand. But also, yeah, there are spikes in death rates when pollution spikes 
severely, maybe more than we'd see in this country, but but Gosh. there are associations. That's so interesting. I'm glad you've kind of nailed the causation versus association kind of factor because, mm-hmm. of course, if we're talking about heart disease. I mean, lifestyle interventions are huge anyway when it comes to diet and activity. There's a lot of factors that could predispose someone to an increased risk anyway. Um, and looking at things like the tube. This is something I've always been very heavily fascinated by. And I know a lot of people that perhaps follow me on social media at Retrition, they will know that I'm constantly dreading my journey to (laughs) the tube every morning. Um, Is it true that (laughs) if you use the tube or you're traveling for just under an hour, it could expose you to as much air pollution as spending an entire day on a busy road? Um, yes, but there are very big buts with that. Good. So this is in terms of, of something called PM2.5, which which we sometimes call fine particulate matter. So it's airborne okay. dust, yeah. two and a half microns in diameter. So that's uh, off the top of my head, about a four hundredth of a millimeter. Wow. Um, so it's small enough to get deep into your lungs. Yeah. Um, and it's associated with a range of health effects. And the, the depending where you are, the average PM 2.5 level outside, you might expect somewhere between 10 and 20. Mm-hmm. In the London Underground, the most recent measurements suggest around 500. <gasps> okay, so 500 versus 10 or 20, so 30 times higher. So for every 30 hours you're spending outside, is the same exposure as one hour on the ground. It's like you've just dropped the biggest awful knowledge bomb in the studio right now. Okay, but, and there's a very big but here. So so the first but is what the particles are made of. Okay. So when you look at particles underground, they're, they're really metallic, mm. um, which you'd expect perhaps if you think about what's generating of them. Course. They come from the wheels and the rails yeah, and the yeah. trains. Outside, a lot of the particles are from car exhaust and from, ah. from burning things. Mm. And actually, if you look at and there aren't many of them, if you look at the studies of health effects of air pollution in underground stations mm. on people's health, yeah. it does have some measurable effects on the lungs in, in terms of short exposures. Mm. But actually, there's no evidence to suggest that long-term exposure necessarily makes your health worse than if you weren't in the underground. And that's mainly on studies done on people who work actually in the Swedish underground. Okay. There are a few reasons to think that that's not enough evidence. So these are all healthy people. They tend to be male. They tend to be middle-aged. And actually air pollution we know affects predominantly people who have have issues with with other... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very young, very old pre-existing health conditions. Um, But I think the jury's out. I think all I'd say is we need to do quite a lot more research on it. Mm. But if you're asking me how I get around when I'm in London predominantly the tube. Ah, okay. But then okay. I'm a healthy middle-aged male, so yeah. draw your own conclusions. No, no, that. that's really reassuring to hear because I'd read something else that around 28,000 to 36,000 deaths a year are attributed to long-term exposure of, of pollution. That's in the UK. Okay. And again, those are deaths, premature deaths. So these right. are not people who, if they hadn't exposed, been exposed to air no. pollution, would have lived another 30 or 40 years yeah, necessarily. Yeah. It's just, it's a bit like if you say to someone that if they don't eat fruit or veg, they will have a shorter lifespan. Yeah. No one dies because they don't have an apple one day. No. It's the same kind of thing. It's so true. In fact, I find most, as a nutritionist, most of my life I'm trying to dispel the myth that if you just eat one item of food, you're suddenly going to become healthy. <laughs> yeah. It's your overall lifestyle, as with everything. Yes. Yeah, but knowing you take the tube, Matthew, has reassured me that, yes, I can. <laughs> I will continue with my commute. Um, so why is pollution so damaging to our bodies? What actually happens when we breathe in those toxins? What's the mechanism? Okay, so 
So the, the, obviously the, the first point of contact for pollution is the lungs. Yes. Okay, so every time you breathe in, depending on how you breathe in, you either breathe through your nose if you're at rest mm-hmm. um, or you breathe through your mouth and the pollution goes up your nose maybe. And, yeah. and, and most of what I work on is the particles, so the, okay. the dust particles. So yeah. if we focus on those. Yeah, okay, moment. so dust particles. So dust particles, if you breathe through your nose, most of them get trapped in the, in the nostrils, in the hairs, in the... Yeah. In the well, the, the protective barriers, exactly, the mucus, the, nasal the mucus. microbiome area around your body, yeah. Exactly. Um, some of it gets into your lungs, more of it gets into your lungs if you breathe through your, through your mouth. Mm. When it gets there, it usually settles in, in the windpipe or in the, the, the tubes, the bronchi, the bronchioles, which lead down yeah. to the bottom of the lungs. Um, most of it gets trapped in mucus, coughed mm. up, and you swallow it. And it's, it's which, fairly... which is why there's especially that London association with um, black snot. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And, and actually that can be measured. You can measure what we really? call black carbon. Is There's a way of measuring it. Oh, but, gosh. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't measure it in snot, but no. you can measure it in the air, yeah. Um, so, so these particles, depending on their size, get to an extent into the airways. Mm. Um, if they do manage to contact cells, they can cause um, irritation to the cells. And they do that by generating what we call uh, reactive oxygen species, which are kind of really reactive molecules that yeah. contain oxygen. Yeah. Um, I suppose perhaps the most most well-known one to the public will probably be hydrogen peroxide, yeah. um, which can be generated by these particles. Mm. Um, that can cause irritation to the airway, so mm. it can cause inflammation. Um, mm. You can get immune cells, which are white blood cells, coming into the airway to, in, as a response, which in some people they might, even in high levels of pollution, they might just experience a slight cough or a wheeze or well, similar to irritation. hay fever i do find yeah. this a lot that i find a lot of clients um i myself and this is obviously very anecdotal mm-hmm. but when i moved to london i developed what's similar to hay fever i never had it back in the country yep so itchy eyes or sometimes runny eyes runny nose mm. scratchy throat exactly yeah. the same yeah um and that's in healthy people mm. um but what you can also do you can measure what we call lung function the, the ability to inhale oxygen mm. inhale air and and that tends to drop so your lungs yeah. don't work quite as well yeah but maybe you wouldn't notice that yeah. but then there are also effects on the cardiovascular system so actually the the, the strongest links of air pollution are, are to heart disease and, and stroke and yes heart attack. i've been reading about that yeah, yeah. and so that we're we, we think we know how that occurs but there's different mechanisms so one of them is that the particles might actually be able to get into the bloodstream around the body mm. uh, one is that they might cause these infl- inflammatory processes in the lungs which then um, release chemicals into the blood which then cause those inflammatory responses yeah. and perhaps effects on the nervous system as well uh-huh. so different mechanisms for effects but it, it is particularly the cardiovascular system but we're also now seeing associations and again association rather than cause, cause yeah. yeah with type 2 diabetes um, dementia oh. um, loss of I guess what we call cognitive performance, so the a lesser Any neurodegenerative ability to do, type of disease. Yeah, but but also lesser ability to do well in in say verbal reasoning tests, wow. for example. And that's okay. been shown last year in a in a study in China, which was really quite nicely designed. Yeah. Um, effects that actually healthy people probably wouldn't notice, but mm. are measurable. Mm. But of course, then the people who've already got heart disease or asthma more likely to have. Um, episodes of, of mm. exacerbations of those diseases and that's yeah. when it becomes a problem. Yeah, obviously we need a lot more research in these areas but it, it's extremely fascinating and I think that I understand that pollution is obviously more about exposure and that that's because of how close we are maybe to the traffic or where we live perhaps as mm-hmm. well but one thing that's always concerned me living in London at the moment in particular or if anyone's listening out there if you live in a city if you are a mum of a young child or a baby does it impact the child? Let's say if you have a pram and the child is at the same height of a car exhaust and you're walking down roads, 
surely because the child will have smaller lungs or something along that degree. What I'm trying to say is, is it damaging to a child's health to be exposed like that? So, first of all, children in general, their lungs are still developing and air pollution can reduce the um, degree to which they develop, Mm -hmm. um, which can be improved by moving them away from the pollution and that their lungs can kind of regain that lost lung function but once they reach the age where their lungs would normally be fully developed it's kind of locked in okay Mm. but that's Mm. children in general if you're talking specifically about prams and pushchairs near the road there's a colleague of mine in um, at the university of surrey prashant kumar who's done Uh some really nice work with this where they actually Uh put a load of pollution monitoring pollution monitoring devices in a pram. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> Walked around Guildford with it. <laughs> great. I bet <laughs> that was fun. Probably got some strange looks. I'm sure. <laughs> um, and they found that actually the children or, or that the devices in the pram yes. were exposed to different levels of uh, certainly particulate matter, which is what yeah. they were looking at compared to the parents. The sometimes mm. it was more, sometimes it was less. Mm. Um, but they've also looked at, at all the other work that's been done in this area. And it does seem that if children are within about a metre of the ground, what Mm. they call the breathing zone, Mm. where the mouth is. If they're near the ground, they do tend to breathe in more particulate matter. Mm. Um, And that could potentially have have effects on on their lungs, which just considering the parents Mm. who were taller, you Mm. wouldn't necessarily see. I would say there's not enough to draw really firm conclusions, but it would certainly... um, make me think yeah. about about what children are being exposed to and, and ways in which potentially that exposure can be reduced. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's really a good, important take home for anyone listening that perhaps if they avoid the main road and they maybe take the parallel road that's just even a little bit behind and less busy, that could help. Agreed. There is there is evidence that if you take a road that's parallel but, but literally just 10 or 20 metres yes. back, it can reduce your exposure to certain pollutants by 50% sometimes. Yeah. That was actually some work done in, in London, actually, by King's College. Yeah. Because um, I believe you worked on something last year, didn't you, that was to do with the tubes or different mapping of the polluted routes in London? Uh, so, so I originally used to work on on um, underground trains, yeah. Um, although not in London, somewhere. Okay. I'm, I'm not allowed to say where it was, okay, um, but not in London. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't actually really done any any work on streets as mm. such. Although what I do now is more more related to ships and ports and road oh, traffic and what comes out of them. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, going back to your your question about about walking near the road mm. certainly I, w- I would say walking on a on a parallel quieter street is is an easy win if you like it's an yeah. easy way to reduce your pollution exposure without having any um you know um, inconvenience to your everyday mm. life yeah because you mentioned there as well obviously working on different th- fields like planes and ships and different pollutants that affect the environment and obviously we've got manufacturing going on we've got construction happening out of all of these what causes the biggest problem i mean it, it seems like we're never going to be in a place where there's no cars so no one's just going to be walking and cycling everywhere at this rate it depends where you are depends when you are mm. um i suppose it depends what you mean by problem yeah um so certainly in cities over the past 20 or 30 years, it's been the car that's been thought of as being the major issue. Yeah. Actually, you know, a, a, a properly tuned Euro 6, which is the, the best emission standard diesel car, Ooh, which okay. is actually performing as it should. Yeah. And there are some issues with that. <laughs> if it's performing as it should, the exhaust emissions should not be particularly high compared to what they used to be. Ah. Okay. 
what we're becoming more worried about is what we call non-exhaust emissions. So the brake wear, the road wear, the tyre wear. So things that I hadn't even to, thought of those. Yeah. Um, and actually, as as um, electric cars get heavier because the yeah. battery yeah. adds weight, you may get more of some of those particles generated, and we don't really understand their effects. So, so research is starting into that. Right. As cars become maybe slightly less important, or at least the exhaust from cars, mm. um, wood burning has has gone up. So a lot of people now, you, I'm sure you don't remember, I, I don't remember it from 10 Gosh. or 20 years ago, but you, you see adverts for wood stoves that people can have in their houses and it's, oh. it's really nice wood yeah, burner. Yeah, yeah, Well, I've lived in London too long where you can't have any of that in your flat, so. Exactly, <laughs> but I, I've noticed over the past couple of winters, you walk past people's houses and uh, you smell, you think, oh, someone burning wood or leaves yeah. and it's, it's their house. Um, and this can account for 30, maybe 40% of particulate matter in, in certain urban areas and you know this is this is actually unlike cars where some people need a car and i'm Mm. not defending all car use but sometimes it's necessary um but i don't really see any need for wood stoves whatsoever Um, there are some stoves that claim to be lower emissions and i I don't really know how true those claims are (laughs) i think a lot of it depends on what you put in the stove um but Really, there's no need for a wood stove. What about gas hobs? So gas hobs can also give off, you know, cooking. Yeah, it's a course. major source of indoor indoor well, emissions and indoor I pollutants. I to touch on that. Yeah, indoor pollutants. Mm. Um, I just feel like, what what is there in the home that we should be aware of? Then, what is the is it scented what candles? Or, oh, really? Okay. Okay. So, okay. so I have to say, this is not my main area of expertise. That's all right. That's okay. I think we do know much less about it in general yeah. um, than we know about outdoor pollution. Yeah. But um, okay. So if we think about uh, paints, mm-hmm. varnishes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you think of um, what else? Um, there are uh, chemicals that leach out of fire-resistant foams that you get in your furniture. Oh, wow. Um, any plastics, plasticizers, they oh. can leach out. Don't get me started on plastic. Cooking, <laughs> uh, especially cooking at high temperatures. So yeah. if people char grill things, but stir frying as well gives off huge amounts of particles, both from the, the oil and from the food and from the flame itself. Of course. Um, candles, air fresheners, deodorants, aerosols. So there's obviously not enough going on um, to discuss this because you've just listed, I would say, at least yeah. 20 <laughs> things in the house. And that's at least, I say. Um, I've heard of certain companies, um, one particularly springs to mind, having indoor um, kind of extractor devices mm. that clean the air. How accurate are those? Because I've even got one at home. Um, so I can't. I, I don't know the full extent of, of what their claims are, yeah. and also how valid those claims are. Right. I've got no reason to think the claims aren't valid. No, it's um, quite an innovative brand. It is. <laughs> I, I think. I think there's a couple of issues. I think one issue is air pollution is is a um, is a societal problem, and, and it's known that people at the to the, the 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 poorer end of society. I mean, we usually yeah. say socioeconomic we do. level, but, uh, yeah. but the poorer end of society yeah. tend to have worse air quality. They emit less, but they are exposed more. Mm. And these devices can be quite expensive. Mm. So, so oh, there's yeah. an issue of whether we're um, really making protection from pollution. Um, something that's societally stratified if you like where only only richer people can afford to breathe cleaner there's also i suppose the question of of um what happens to the filters and i was there's there's um there's mm. a professor at leeds ali lewis who who wrote an article about this on the internet last week mm. um and he made a very valid point that if you have these filters that are sucking in air and filtering out all the particles which mm you know, probably quite toxic in small amounts. Yeah. And they're concentrating them all on a filter. 
And then we chuck that filter in the bin and it goes to landfill. All of the dirt and all of the chemicals from that filter are ending up in the landfill. What's happening to the landfill to it then? And also what what about the filters? I'm not sure what they're made of, but are they generating particles that, that themselves get into the oh, air? Oh gosh. Yeah. I, I mean, certainly, you know, HEPA filtered air, which is what, what people in these sort of clean laboratories where you see them on the yes. TV wearing all these bodies. Yeah. yeah, HEPA filtered air is much, much, much cleaner than yeah. air outside. I think we're looking at the wrong target, if I'm brutally honest. Okay. And I, also in this country, you know, I think if I lived in China, maybe I would. Yeah. In this yeah. country, I think it's the wrong target. Okay. I think we should be looking at the emissions rather than trying to scoop out of the air mm. what's in our house. Also, you know, unless you've got your window um, closed, if you've got your window open, then effectively you're trying to cool. What about if you live everywhere. by a main road? Yeah, so this is a question about whether, you know, is it better you to have your Do you shut it or open yeah, it? <laughs> I, that's, that's a very good question. I know. And I don't know the answer, in no. all honesty. I don't know that it's ever really been We don't have the solutions really yet, do we, no. either? I think it's one of these overwhelming problems. We're now starting to talk about pollution. We're talking about plastic. We're talking about all these things that we know we need to do something about. And it's almost like, how do we start? Yeah, exactly. Where do we start? And I guess... As a nutritionist, my main interest is on food. So there's a two-way relationship between food production and air pollution, isn't there? I mean, when it comes to significantly polluted air, does it impact the food in any way? If you're growing crops in an area that's got a main road next to it, um, or if you're eating a diet, for instance, some studies have said if you eat a diet rich in meat, dairy, and eggs, that you'll produce more greenhouse gases. What are your views on that area? Certainly, and again, this this is really not not my mm. main area of expertise. Yeah. But you know, the dairy produce, meat consumption is certainly linked to greenhouse gas production, which which may have more of an effect on the environment than yeah. it does on health. Perhaps, for example, methane. Yeah, methane is is a very potent greenhouse yeah. gas. Um, in terms of the effect of pollution on food, I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Um, but. Uh, and especially if you're growing things at the roadside, I'm not really sure yeah. whether, whether I think it would have any effect. We need to study that. Effect. I would love to see. But there are, you know, there are. Going back to, to where I work on ships, ships mm. have ways of cleaning cleaning their exhaust, which effectively involves spraying water across it. Okay. And they're not meant to, but sometimes they dump that water that's been used to clean the in, clean the exhaust into the sea. Uh. And then if you know if any fish eat that, then potentially you're accumulating those toxins in the food chain potentially um but in terms of in this country and what we do with our food i, I really don't know mm. that there's any evidence out there or at least if there is i haven't seen it obviously i get asked a lot about what kind of things can you eat in your diet to protect you from various things and we know that it's not that simple but is there actually any research that suggests that certain types of food can protect you from pollution levels so going back to, to when I talked about um, reactive oxygen species and oxidants, yeah. causing, uh, as a, uh, which cause some of the health effects of air pollution, um, it's possible that eating a diet that's, that's not deficient, at least in antioxidants, so vitamin C, vitamin E particularly, could um, protect us. Although there is some evidence that um, taking a high dose of vitamin C only causes a very brief increase in the amount of yeah. vitamin C in your lungs. So I think it's a question of what you're putting in versus what the actual effect is. There's also an antioxidant called resveratrol. Yes, people always yes. Go on about the one that you get in red wine. And grapes. And grapes. Yeah, so, grapes. So when people say, oh, it's all right, wine, red wine, yeah. it's got resveratrol and so is red grape juice. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> and then there's there's a chemical called sulforaphane, yes. which, which acts as, it, it basically activates within our cells a master switch for... Mm 
generating antioxidants. Mm. So you think, oh, that would be great to take sulforaphane. Yes. Sulforaphane is found in cruciferous vegetables, yes. like broccoli, sprouts, yeah. and so on. The problem is that, that as far as I'm aware, you'd have to eat about 30 to 40 kilos of broccoli to get that effect. And then your greenhouse gas emissions would be (laughs) probably shoot through the roof. So, um, you know, these are things that in theory Mm. might be good according to how we know air pollution works. But I suspect actually in real life situations, getting enough of them into our body and for them then to get to the right Mm. place in our body is a bit of a big ask. For what you've just said as well, this hammers home the message I'm always banging on about is that we're all unique and everything in moderation because we need more fruit and vegetables in our diet. Ultimately, the more antioxidants, the more vitamins, the more minerals, the better. And not from supplement form for anyone listening. If we're talking about bioavailability, it's always going to be better if you eat it instead. So, But who is more at risk of pollution? So we, we've mentioned, obviously, if you're predisposed to a certain condition, would it be the elderly or perhaps pregnant women? Are there any specific kind of groups? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, I think if you're saying more, I think it's difficult to quantify it. Um, yeah. People are differentially at risk. So mm-hmm. certainly people with severe underlying respiratory and cardiovascular disease mm-hmm. are, are known to be at risk and, mm-hmm. and you know when you especially when you see a, sh- a spike in air pollution there's yeah. notable increases in the number of people who have to go to hospital for asthma attacks for heart attacks for strokes usually somewhere between one and three days after the pollution spike but mm-hmm. we're talking about spikes here that are really high so when we're not, you say a spike hmm. just so the listeners know is that when the is it the PM, um, the particle matters? Is this more of them present? It's when there's a lot more in the air. Yeah. And, and the studies that usually look at that tend to look at events like forest fires. Oh, um, right. And it's especially, I suppose it's especially easy to look at in uh, places like Australia of and course. Indonesia, yeah. Philippines, where they have either accidental or managed forest yeah, fires yeah. that do cause very steep increases. Here, I'd say the closest we probably get to is bonfire night. Okay. Um, oh, you can smell it in London. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, I'm not really aware of much research. There's been a bit of research done that suggests that those particles on bonfire night might be more 
toxic. They might be able to generate more of these reactive oxygen mm. species. But I've not seen any studies that show a definitive increase in any health effects after bonfire no. night. But going back to 1950s, when there was the great smog mm-hmm. in London in uh, December 1952, mm. there was a massive increase in smoke, massive increase in sulfur dioxide, which mm. is the gas you get from coal burning. Yeah. At the same time, a massive increase in death rate. Gosh. Um, the smoke and the sulfur dioxide went down quite quickly. The death rate took a lot longer to go yeah. back to the level it was at. So we can track these episodes, mm. but I'd say in this country, it's that kind of thing's much less of a, of a yeah. risk. Oh, it's so fascinating. I think people are starting to do something, though. I mean, most of the listeners would be living in London listening to this podcast, but... Should London folk be more worried, let's say? And because I know that London are bringing in the ultra low emission zone, um, the ULEZ to abbreviate, mm-hmm. um, is now in place. And I'm wondering if you could tell us exactly what this means and whether it should be rolled out across the UK. So London's had a low emission zone since uh, I think it was first phasing in 2008, I think. Mm. Uh, and that was. Um, aimed at restricting emissions from from larger goods vehicles. Mm. And it's done, again, on the basis of what I mentioned before about these Euro emission standards, which which look at how much particulates and how much nitrogen dioxide a vehicle releases. The difference with the ultra-low emission zone is that it will affect cars, private vehicles, as well as the larger goods vehicles. Um, And it will apply the most up-to-date emissions regulations to those cars. Mm. There is a big question mark about whether the emissions from a car as is measured in the the testing scenario really mirrors what's going on when Mm. it's driving around the streets and most of the evidence suggests it doesn't and it misses it by quite a long way. But whether it will have any effect, I'm not sure. Most of the evidence about low emission zones at the moment suggests that they have only a small effect on air quality. And I've not seen any study on low emission zones that they have any real beneficial effect on health outcomes Mm. there are some instances where local authorities have taken massive action to Mm. improve air quality yeah um so two cases in point atlanta olympics in 1996 beijing olympics 2008 where they had massive restrictions on traffic because yeah you don't want your marathon runners keeling over in the middle of the street right it doesn't look too good on tv no (laughs) but but this kind of restriction Mm. i think it will improve air quality I'm not sure it will improve air quality as much as people predict. Well, what about hybrid cars? I think that's another thing. They're saying mm-hmm. that if you have a hybrid in London, then you can drive your car more. Is that correct? Yeah, so hybrids that... are petrol rather than diesel. Yeah. There is, again, question marks about the newest diesel and how yeah. dirty they are compared to the newest petrol. And obviously yeah. hybrids are running on electric some of yeah. the time. Um, I think really it's something where our previous estimates of what will happen versus what has happened have been so out of sync with mm. each other that we just have to oh, see. Gosh. So should we all be moving to the countryside? <laughs> so I was talking about this with a colleague the other day. Um, yeah. People move out of the city because that's the aspiration, right? You can yeah. have a house in the countryside. Well, kind of and I then everyone well, everyone then wants to have the city life. So every day they that's drive true. into town, mm-hmm. sit in traffic jams because they want to go to the cinema or the restaurants or see their friends. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly the same, except, yeah. except everyone's living in the countryside. And eventually, if everyone moves to the countryside, you need all the local amenities. Yeah. Within a couple of decades, you've got a mini town. And then everyone wants to move out of the mini town. So, ah, okay, no, that's true. But what about if you compare the UK then to other countries? I mean, is the problem getting worse or better? Do we have any kind of data we can pull in there? Um, so, concentrations of most air pollutants in this country are going down, ah. and they have been going down for 
10, 15, 20 years, depending on the pollutant. Great. Um, the, as I said earlier, the, the, the effects on health seem to be going up. Mm. That's more because we know um, more about how pollution affects health. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at other countries, some countries' pollution levels are going up. Most the global picture is is improving slowly. Yeah. Um, but again, because we know more about the effects, the total mm. number of associated deaths and negative health outcomes yeah. is going up. Also, more people now are living in cities um, yeah. because they're exposed and therefore they're exposed more to urban air pollution. True. So it's not just what's an average over the whole country, but actually no. what are people themselves breathing. And this is why, we, you know, our knowledge of actually the effects of air pollution is 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 lacking, I guess. I mean, there's a lot mm. of work out there, but the problem is how do you work out what people are exposed to? How do you quantify it? It's very, it? Yeah. very difficult. At the moment, we have air pollution stations. Yeah. So they sit on the street. Unless you spend 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, sat next to that pollution mm. station, that's not what you're breathing no, in. of course, so, no. So it's very, very difficult to put on. And, and we can't just blame the government, can we? Is there anything that we can do as individuals to help improve our impact on the pollution levels? Um, yes. So um, I think one of the main ones is... is I suppose what's now called active transport, so cycling and walking. Mm. And if, if you can't do those, public transport. Mm. And absolutely, there are sometimes some people or some circumstances where that just isn't possible and a car is necessary. Well, even cycling next to a busy car, well, road of cars in London, it, it's quite dangerous. It's very dangerous. And you're probably inhaling a lot. Well, there's some. Let, let's talk about the, da- okay, well, the okay. dangerous <laughs> bit first. Okay. Um, so I'd, I personally... Used to cycle, and I don't cycle anymore for that very reason. Yeah. Uh, I walk, I don't own a car, but yeah. not so much for environmental reasons. Mm. Um, but I don't cycle uh, mm. because it's dangerous. Mm. Um, I, you know, I think we want to improve air quality, but am I willing to potentially sacrifice my life for it? No. 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 Yeah. Um, so I think what we do need is separate cycle lanes um, where you have um, a, a, some kind of raised curb between them. And even better would be some greenery on that raised curb yes. to act as a barrier. Yes. So going back to what you said about what we're inhaling, the, pe- the people who are exposed to the very most air pollution are people who sit in cars. It's a bit of a misnomer. People say, <sighs> I don't want to be exposed to pollution, so therefore I'm going in my, my car. car. The air around you in a car, the air's getting sucked in. If you think where you are as a driver, you're right behind the car in front's exhaust pipe. So you, you, all the mm. air's coming in. can be around about six to eight times more polluted in a car than it is outside. Wow. But then there's also the question of what you're inhaling. Because if you just sat there in a car, you're breathing not very fast, you're breathing not very deep. Whereas if you're really going for it on the bike, yeah. your ventilation is, is faster. It's True. also your tidal volume, so the amount of air you're yes. breathing in is more. Yes. So actually you're probably breathing in a little more air pollution than yeah. if you sit in the car. But then there's the physical benefits. Mm. And there's been some computer re- research done on computer modelling uh, basis for this that suggests that in this country, and, and to be honest in, in much of the mm. Western world, However long you cycle, the health benefits will outweigh the damage from pollution. Yeah. It's not necessarily the same if you're in somewhere like Delhi or Beijing, where actually cycling for more than 30 to 45 minutes might be more damaging to your health mm-hmm. than not doing any exercise. Wow. But in this country, the evidence is that the exercise, at least if you're healthy, yeah. 
you know, I'm not talking about people with asthma. No, no, of course. But as long as you're healthy, the evidence is yeah. that the exercise is always better than the, the negative effects of the, yeah. of the air pollution. I agree. It kind of brings me back to my university days doing tidal volume and studies in labs yeah. with the <laughs> spirometers. <laughs> and, yeah. Came right back into my head. Okay, so we know what we can do to help and getting moving um, helps. But one little fact I just wanted to question with you is that my clinic is on Harley Street. And um, with Oxford Street's pollutant levels supposedly breaching the EU's um, annual limit um, just four days into the year, I'm definitely walking through this kind of area every day. So I'm now going to take the park. So that would kind of be a better route. Even if it's longer to go to work, it's probably going to be more beneficial for me. But are those statistics accurate then? When we hear scaremongering headlines like that, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast... Should we be listening to these headlines? So the, the limit that you're talking about is is the number of times that a location can breach. I think what you're talking about, at least, is the number of times yeah. a location can breach its daily average for nitrogen dioxide. Yeah. It might be hourly average, actually. I can't yeah. remember. Um, I'm not sure that's true this year. I wouldn't, okay. Is that this year's data? Yeah. Okay, fine. So, so it is breaching those levels. Um, there's a really interesting study, or actually there's a couple of studies that we've done, mm. where where some researchers from King's College got people to walk down Oxford Street for two hours. Um, and then they got another group of people to walk around Hyde Park for two hours. Mm. And then wow. a couple of weeks later, they switched them over. So the Hyde yeah. Park group did Oxford Street and vice versa. And they found that walking down Oxford Street had even though these people were healthy, had effects on their lungs, had effects on the cells that were in the in the fluid of their lungs when they when they, they looked within the lungs. Um is it something you should be worried about? I'd say it's something that people should be aware of, mm. um, especially people who might be at risk. Mm. You know, I think it's important if people have asthma, if people have oh, yeah. even a mild cardiovascular disease, that they're mm. aware of these pollution levels so that yeah. you know if they need an inhaler, they, they can potentially Take use it, it if them. necessary. Yeah, of course. Um, and I say that, you know, I'm not I'm not a medical doctor, so <laughs> no, I can't tell people to when to. But it's good to it? be aware of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, but... But I suppose one of the one of the other aspects of the question is: Is this simply a consequence of the way we live in modern society? Mm. Um, you know, how much of pollution comes from from people wanting to get around to see friends, or to go to go to the cinema on the bus, mm. um, or driving around because they they want to get to places which. You know, if everyone lived in little communities, they wouldn't they wouldn't do that. No, so I suppose the question is. How much of the pollution is a necessary evil? How much of it can we target to reduce? Yeah. There's yeah. always going to be some air pollution, even if we got rid of all burning, all cars, or yeah. you know, there, there would. I mean, it'll be everywhere, even in hospitals. You know, people work in hospital environments. There'll be levels of pollution from different. Even things. if you go yeah, to you the Arctic, there's yeah. pollution. Yeah. Um, but I, I wouldn't worry about it. Okay. I would be aware of it. and, yeah. and let that awareness guide you as to choosing okay. maybe the best route to walk to work and maybe helping you to decide to walk rather than use the car. Yes, no, definitely. So that's going to be something I'm definitely taking away from this episode. Now, we have lots of questions that I've been putting out there from followers, um, people on social media platforms. A cat has said, I live in London and I'm trying for a baby, but I'm worried about what pollution levels might do to you know his or her health. Am I much better off moving outside of London? I mean, that's probably a very common question. So I, I can't answer the question in terms of <laughs> no. where someone should live. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, London does get in the news a lot because of its pollution levels. Mm. Um, but other cities in the UK are 
depending on where you are, just yeah. as or not much less polluted yeah, than London. I'm sure. um, there are some studies that have documented the effects of pollution on unborn babies. Oh, yeah. um, and so they suggest that babies who are born to mothers in more polluted areas may be born slightly preterm. Oh, gosh. They may be born slightly lower weight. Mm. And they may have a slightly smaller um, either length or head circumference, depending on what you measure. These right. are um, not big differences. No. You know, they're not big differences at all. Okay. Um, but they are differences that have been noted in, in, um, in the literature. Some of them in this country, many of them abroad. Yeah. So, um, but, but it's important to remember that there are all sorts of other of course. effects on health as of well course, so, of course we don't want to scare my no it's not at all important not at all. to know that i think cat that yes of course pollution affects it so maybe just change the way you walk to work if you've got that or try and minimize exposure perhaps. if it was me i, I would again i would in, enjoy having a child and i'd yeah. probably i might think about walking a different route to work yeah. if, it, if it didn't exactly. put me out of out of yeah. you know out of my my daily routine yeah we've got to be realistic um margaret has said oh this is the question i asked earlier about the air purifier at home was it worth the money so i think we've kind of covered that question look if it makes <laughs> if it makes someone feel happier in their yes. home right and it means they're worrying less yeah maybe. i agree happy life <laughs> happy life happy forever um robbie has said do plants inside my house help reduce pollution levels that's a really complicated question. Ooh. So, so there is the effect of plants potentially cleaning the air. And yeah. Certainly, there's, there's plants. Plants can act as barriers. You know, potentially, if you have them near an open That's window, some leaves mm. can trap particulates. Mm. Depending on what the plant is, it depends on you know what kind of a whether the surface of the leaf is hairy or smooth yes. or waxy or, 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 or what have you. Yeah. Um, there is also some evidence that plants can generate certain pollutants. Oh, okay. Um, so, so some of uh, the chemicals in diesel exhaust can react with, with chemicals from plants and produce new pollutants. Oh my goodness! Um, again, what I will say is that there is really good evidence out there about the um, the effect of um, mainly green space, as it's mm. called, parkland, and mm. even plants having plants around on well being. Yeah. So, if it was me. Yeah. Uh, if I liked having plants in my house Fill and I didn't have hay plants. fever, I'd have plants. Oh, yeah, that's the thing, yeah. the hay fever. And if I were, you know, not so busy, I could actually water them. That's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> plants die in my house, unfortunately. <laughs> um, okay, so the last question. Aston has said, you know, I've just come back from China and everyone was wearing these masks. So do you think I should be wearing masks when I'm cycling or in the UK? Does it actually have any impact? In short, no. Um, mm. There's not a huge amount of work out there in the literature. There's a few papers that have looked at all sorts of different masks. Yes. And they tend to look at them in the more polluted cities. So actually, this, okay. one of the studies that springs to mind was actually done in, I think it was in Beijing. Yeah. And they found that they studied all sorts of masks. So the surgical masks that people wear or just having a cotton handkerchief in front of your mouth. Well, they, I've seen that a lot. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, and most of these things don't work. They have found that there are a couple of masks and they tend to be the ones worn by paint sprayers and carpenters. Of they they may have a a small beneficial effect. Yeah, it's better to wear it than not, I suppose. Well, so Ooh. that's if they're properly fitted. If you don't have any facial uh, hair, yeah. um, of course, if they don't fit properly and they oh, impede facial your hair, is that because it will trap all the particles? So these particles, some of the particles, the very smallest ones, we're talking about. Um, 100 nanometers, which is is about a ten thousandth of a millimeter. Oh gosh! So they're yeah, so small that, that if you mm. have a little gap, they'll just 
get in anyway. Mm. Um, I would say that that if again, if it makes someone feel safer, mm. it makes someone feel more protected yeah. than whatever someone wants. But personally, yeah. I, I think they're both probably not particularly effective. Yeah. Um, and also uh, not the right way to go about it. We should be looking more at the sources of pollution yeah, rather prevention. than protecting it. And also, how would it feel if you were walking down the street and everyone was wearing a mask? <gasps> I know, I know. It'd, just, it'd be a bit scary. <laughs> the, the, the other thing to say is that, that what I will say is that all of these studies on masks have been done in healthy people. Ooh. No one's actually studied, as far as I'm aware, whether they have any protect, protective effect on people yeah. who've got underlying... Yeah, predisposing illnesses. Yeah, yeah okay. probably because it's not very ethical to get someone who you think might have an adverse reaction and shove them outside and say you know go and have a walk around (laughs) so (laughs) exactly no very good point well thank you for that Matthew we're now moving on to my favorite part of the podcast this is our fact or fiction quick fire round sounds like my least favorite (laughs) (laughs) okay so you either answer fact or fiction as quickly as you can but no pressure. It's all a good bit of fun. Are okay. these questions where you know the answer? Well, uh, the answer may not be fact or fiction. It's up okay. to you. You know, I'm not saying that I'm the expert here. Okay. Number one, joggers inhale more pollution than those walking the same distance. If they're in the same area, then fact. Pollution does m- more harm than smoking. To the global population, the numbers suggest yes, but to people, but to individuals, it depends whether you smoke or not. Mm. Um, to people who smoke, definitely not. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Scented candles are a hundred percent safe to use in the home. Um, from the evidence I've seen, no. <gasps> and I love scented candles, Matthew. Oh, um, pollution makes us age. Um, yeah, there's some evidence that it does, but but the the amount to which it makes us age, I, I don't I don't really know. There's some evidence that it might cause wrinkles and mm. um, some cosmetic skin effects, but I'm not sure. Okay, well, face masks protect you against pollution. Um, some pollution, moderately, perhaps. <laughs> Do I wear one? No. Would I wear one? No. <laughs> there we go. I think that says it all. Exposure to pollution reduces fertility in men and women. Oh. They're hard questions. I've seen some anecdotal evidence that it might have small effects, but really I'm not um, up on the literature enough to be able to answer that okay. authoritatively. Ooh. Carrying a child rather than walking can reduce the exposure to pollution. Um, I presume you mean of the child. Yes. Okay. Um <laughs> I suppose if the child is, if if the child would have been walking next to the road, yeah, yeah. So between the parent and the road, then possibly yes. Okay, there we go. Gosh, it's a good arm workout. Um, Air pollution is making climate change worse. (sighs) Oh, climate change is the the debate. (laughs) I mean, yes. Although there are some air pollutants that are bad for health but good for the climate. Oh, but, but in general, oh, yes. The okay. overriding direction is yes. <laughs> um, diesel exhaust can cause cancer. True. Yeah, that's uh, that's beyond doubt. Yeah. You know, scientists will always say maybe, might, perhaps. Yeah, diesel exhaust is carcinogenic. Yeah. There you go. Gosh, pollution's effects are irreversible. Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. Okay, well done. That's our quick fire round. Thank you. (laughs) I'm blown away by a lot of these answers. It just makes me feel like I need a whole podcast just on maybe anti-aging and pollution and all these fascinating areas. It's a 
potentially a, a money spinning area although i'm not really wow. sure that there's much evidence for well there's lots of people making money off it already I'm so sure i are. think you're yeah. right there <laughs> so that nearly wraps up this episode but as with every guest we finish with a food for thought so mine today would be that although so many of us are becoming conscious of the impact of our diets, the reality is we actually have less healthy food, fiber, vitamins, minerals, and hydration than ever before. And it's really taking a toll on the environment. What's interesting is that a sustainable diet is one with low environmental impact, contributing to food and nutrition security and is linked to healthy lives for a present and future generation. So here's a few things that I've learned to consider when trying to eat a more sustainable diet that you guys at home may want to try yourselves. So the first one would be enjoy a wide variety of food. Really test yourself to try something new each week. Consume minimally processed foods like whole grains, legumes, fruit and veg. But don't be scared of a few cans and things as well. There's nothing harmful of a can of chickpeas, guys. Balance your energy in and energy out because that depends on your activity levels each day. Enjoy dairy and dairy alternatives in moderation. Try unsalted seeds and nuts instead of the flavoured types. Basically mix it up a lot. Experiment with varied fish types, not just one species. Limit food considered high in fat, sugar and salt, and that's definitely for overall health benefits. Get a lot more healthy omega fatty acids because we know that olive oil is heavily researched in the Mediterranean diet. Enjoy more water over other drinks so i'm talking about your fizzy drinks your soft drinks all that kind of stuff there and eat animal produce like meat in moderation so in fact if we could all do the above that i've just listed we would reduce our carbon footprint by 22 percent if we reduced meat intake to less than 90 grams per person per day so there's actually quite a lot of research now out there about diet but if i could let you matthew share with everyone putting you on the spot just one take-home message and obviously you must talk about this all the time back in the university of southampton if you have one food for thought what would that be i'd say that we hear a lot in the press seemingly more and more by by the week about air pollution and the, the damage it does to us and while some of this is true i think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that our bodies are actually quite resilient, mm. um, especially if they're they're in a good state. Um, and I think people people should try and live a life which they they feel is is healthy. You know, and, and a lot of the the good aspects of of avoiding air pollution can include things like walking in parks, green space, going down to the river. You mm. know, areas where there is less air pollution. So. Really, I'd be aware of air pollution, but I wouldn't worry about it and I wouldn't let it rule my life. Oh, that's the best, best food for thought. And it's given me a little bit of a relief because, to be honest with you, this is an episode that I've been wanting from day one. And I'm so happy that we found you. And thank you so much, Matthew, for thank coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to what is the last episode in series two. It's heartening to know there's such a craving to hear from expert voices in a world full of confusing nutritional advice. Your five-star ratings and positive reviews have been so wonderful to read. And if you're keen for me to continue this podcast and record a series three of Food for Thought, please do subscribe so that we can reach even higher highs in the charts, helping more people to listen in and make informed choices about their health and well-being. For more information about my Retrition Clinic, books, healthy recipes, events, retreats, and so much more, please visit retrition.com and follow me at 
Retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. If you believe that healthy eating is expensive, you're not alone. The BBC say up to 80% of the UK struggle to afford healthy food. But let me assure you, it just isn't true. And importantly, cheap does not necessarily mean unhealthy. Yet one food I cannot defend is cheap sausages. You know the ones I mean. Seriously, buy the food you can afford and enjoy it, but if you love sausages, you'll love heck. There's chicken, pork, veggie, and all sorts of varieties in your local supermarket, or check out heckfood.co.uk. And remember, when it comes to sausages, the healthiest tend to be those with a high meat or veg content, because it usually means there's less unnecessary stuff being used to bulk them out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.